This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this uh, extra episode of Einstein and Gogo. Now, I just made that up. It's a, it's the usual <laughs> Sunday episode. Um, I don't know what's going on. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. It is a science program. If you haven't listened to us before, you're going to be hit with about 59 minutes of science from this point forward. In the studio with me is Dr. Jeff. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Are you well, fella? I'm well, as well as can be. Yeah. I've got a funny shoulder at the moment, so if anybody <laughs> knows how to fix one of those things, the, well, the masses that I went to messed it up even more. Oh, really? I should, probably should have gone to a physio. Yeah, I've got a good physio in town. I'll give you a oh. number after the break. You, you will walk out with tears in your eyes, but you'll feel better an hour later, trust me. And it's not just from... Is that the, how much it costs? The fee, yeah. <laughs> no, no, this, this woman has inflicted more pain on me than any woman I know, but she always fixes me up. Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Wow. Speaking how of women that, that yeah. you know, Wow! You well? Yeah, I'm very well. I am very well. Although, yeah, just discussing before we uh, went on air about the Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize week, of course. I was very disappointed to see that no women got the Nobel Prize for anything. So it's a Nobel Prize, B E double L E. Yeah, there's no females. Nobels, exactly. Because we didn't talk about them last week because we had Professor Doherty in, who was a former Nobel Prize winner 20 years ago, and so we did that instead of talking about the Nobels. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that was a protest, actually. Yeah, no, good. No I room. think you should yeah. be protesting. I'll, I'll, I'll say that retrospectively. <laughs> because, <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, when I looked at the physics Nobel Prize, I thought, this is really hard to explain, and I really don't want to go there because <laughs> it's going to bore the crap out of everyone, including me. Yeah. So we left it. Sometimes, you know, when you yeah, do things no, like, sure. you know, blue LEDs and stuff, like yeah. these cool, cool stuff. Cool yeah, stuff, absolutely. Right? But, um, you know, topo- topology and stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway. But no women. I was, I was very disappointed. It just kind of reflects the, uh, yeah. the state of our science and senior scientists in particular. But there was the a, uh, there was a good discussion on the web about Ada Lovelace as well, which yeah, is well, where I saw her, net, her, uh, her. Yeah. Yep. So people are beginning Founder of to, computer to science about, for those yeah. who yeah. don't know. She was an amazing woman. Well, years ago, and maybe I can dig it up. Um, I think I've got it somewhere, but we did in- interview Jocelyn Bell, mm-hmm. who was the student who discovered pulsars. But yeah, her right. supervisor won the Nobel the, for that, yes, and she wasn't included. Mm-hmm. We, we talked. We talked to her once, long, long probably twenty years ago mm-hmm. now, actually, on the mm-hmm. program. And I think I've still got it wow. somewhere because it was such a, a you know a thrill as yeah. a as a budding astrophysicist at the time um, to Get meet the someone archives out. Like That's that. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I think I've got it. Yeah, the archives cool. just in the triple R pigeonhole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> single pigeonhole. Yeah, it's not so far away. So things. Things will change. Having said that, that's still being optimistic very slowly because very slowly. because fe- uh, because female scientists at, a, at the ground level, the postdoc yep. student level, are, are up there. But yeah. as you mm. go higher and higher up, they seem to be squeezed out. Yeah, mm. and, and ultimately the Nobels are going to have to modify themselves in some way. Yeah, not sure. not just because of all the issues with the Karolinska Institute over the last sort of year, but because you cannot look at all science now and only give out a prize to three people maximum yeah. because a lot of the collaborative work involves many more people than three. Well, science is increasingly a team endeavour. I mean, you know, you look at the CERN labs, hundreds and hundreds. Mm. You look at the, the gravity wave stuff. Hundreds yeah. of people are involved in this stuff. Yeah. You cannot have a prize that just gives it to three. Yeah. So, anyway, it's all yeah. good. And this is, has implications for, for example, research fellowships as well, yeah. where you're rewarded yeah. for what you do. And what if, you yeah. do. If you're yeah. a collaborative researcher, your researchers yeah. seem to be diluted. Yeah. Yeah. It's a schism in science. <laughs> anyway, let's, uh, let's get on to... Sorry, it. that was a bit deep it's, to start right, the morning. That's, yeah, it's a bit tough. <laughs> but, but to be fair, it's been a pretty average week in science. Not a lot's happened, so we're a bit light on. Um, Dr. Ailey, let's start with you because you, you did dig 
dig deep and you found something that was mildly disturbing. Deep. It was exciting. Well, it was about spiders. I like spiders. I no, hate spiders. I like likes spiders. spiders. So we're spider people this side yeah. of the desk. Yeah, no, I, I should have brought little, like, toy spider in to scare well, Dr. Shane or something. Well, I no, didn't realise you were an arachnophobe. Well, yeah, but I'm a rational one. Oh, right. You know, like, okay. so if you throw a little bit of plastic at me, I'm going to go, that's a little <laughs> bit of plastic. plastic right, if you okay. throw a bird-eating spider at me, I'll throw a shoe. It's as simple as that. <laughs> so just, you know. Oh, dear. Well, anyway, but, look. But I do, but I, it's funny. Bird, talk, you know, it's interesting when you, when you have a phobia because the last thing you want is your own kids to have your phobia. No, that's right. And so I have actually taught my, my kids not to be afraid of spiders and to, cool. you know, put them outside and all this sort of stuff. M- meanwhile, I'm sweating. <laughs> I was going to say, as long as they don't come up with two oh, with one in their hand. Look, you know, Dad. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it just freaks me out. But that's clever because you see a spider, they can remove it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's what, they, that was they, the intention. They're my the heroes. Anyway, back to the science around <laughs> these spiders. So everybody is kind of, you know, you're taught when you're, when you're little that spiders they don't have ears they don't hear they 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 feel things right they're the little hairs on their their Ugh. little spidery legs <laughs> <laughs> making shade break out now. even more now. Yeah. but um so they have these really sensitive leg hairs and it's always kind of been the the idea or biologists have always thought that spiders can kind of hear through these leg hairs but only maybe a few centimeters maybe a few tens of centimeters away from um away from them and so what they've done, this this group of biologists um, from Cornell University, actually in the U- US, is they don't ask me how they made brain recordings of a particular type of spider. Whoa. <laughs> brain recordings, tiny I don't know. Function, tiny, tiny. Functional MRI. Yeah, I don't know, but anyway, they made brain recordings <laughs> of this Phytopus uh, odax, which is a type of jumping spider. You know, those little oh, tiny yeah, the little ones. Yeah, yep. a little tiny jumping spider. And what they found was that yes, of course, when they went within a few centimeters, they found uh, records of neuron activity. But then one day, they also noticed that every time they moved their chairs in the lab, this neuron activity would increase. And, of course, oh. this is metres away from where these spiders are. Disturbing. Yeah. So they did a few more little tests, and what they found was, yeah, in fact, these jumping spiders could detect or could hear through these little leg hairs up to three metres away, so almost across the other side of a, a small room. Uh, these jumping spiders could hear what was around them, which has all sorts of implications for how they catch prey and, and how they, yeah, get around in the world, which was really interesting. Now, so I, I know it's the exact the spiders same... spiders can hear you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's the exact same thing, but do we know... I mean, presumably they're feeling vibrations, they're yeah, not hearing. Yeah, no, that's so, exactly right. They're, yeah, so they're, they're feeling they're just, the vibrations. Yeah, that's how they, they quote-unquote hear. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly right. Okay. But, uh, yeah, that was published in a, a, a um, journal called Current Biology, so that was, yeah. that was kind of interesting. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I mean, the, yeah. you know, a predator-prey relationships, yeah. you've mm, got yeah. to be aware of what's moving That's around. That's right. But they were talking about things like, you know, wasps coming from, mm. from great distances. You know, they could, they could, they simulated sounds of kind of wasp wings and those low mm. peaks. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And they could hear them from several metres right. away. So yeah, that was quite cool. interesting. Uh, I saw, I once saw, twice seen this. Now you think huntsmen are scary enough. There was something, there's a wasp that preys on huntsmen. Oh, yeah. And they inject them. That. I saw them carrying mm. it across my garden, dragging it up and down, up and down, and obstacles so yeah we we need we need spiders spiders. and um i've always said i'm sure there's entomologists out there who disagree i don't think we need wasps bees fine wasps could go and 
Yeah, yeah, yeah they're predator, predators, though. You know, you got you got to have predators. Predator keep the others in check. You know, the two things for me, two of the most interesting things in nature. One I really dislike, and one I love. Both have eight. You know, octopus, unreal, <laughs> unreal. I mean, they are the most unreal um, creatures. Spiders, yeah. uh, but, but still, I mean, what, they, about they, what if, if you had a hairy octopus? What, how would you stand then? <laughs> Let's move on. Hypotheticals. <laughs> what have you got for us? Well, I want each person out there incl- and in the studio. <laughs> Uh, boys and girls, uh, to um, uh, boys, males, as the police say, males, uh, take out your left hand, palm up. Mm-hmm. Ladies, take your right hand, palm up, put it down on the desk or surface you're working with. Um, please don't do this if you're driving. <laughs> look, uh, look at the length of your ring finger, uh, which counting from your thumb is the fourth one along and look at the that that includes the thumb index finger yes the index (laughs) finger is the second one so the one after the thumb which is also called the 2g or 2d or two second digit versus the ring finger which is called the fourth digit um now uh in the studio which is the longer one shane uh mine's the second finger so it's the okay the one next to my index finger. interesting um and mine, or as I call it, the naughty finger. My, <laughs> what? Mine are the same. Oh, that's a good point. Naughty finger. Uh, uh, yeah. Mine are the same size, same length. My my index finger is longer. I'm scared of what that means. Okay, <laughs> your index okay. finger. That oh. that one. The that same. one is the long, one next okay. to the thumb. Oh, that's longer than your uh, third finger. My ring finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, her index finger. Yeah, well. Yeah. In females, the um, index finger, the root finger, is usually longer, and in males, the <laughs> ring finger is usually longer. Yay! So I'm I'm neutral. I'm male. And, and, and no, you're. Which one? Was no, no, longer? sorry, I was confused. Oh, but yeah, yeah, no, slightly longer. Yeah. yeah so I'm definitely, definitely well, male. Actually, I think everyone's just confirming that Shane. Yeah. Is I'm in touch yeah. with my feminine side. I think because they're, they're both the same length. Well. I, met, I did this because I, I found an article called Testosterone Levels in the Womb Affect Your Likelihood of Becoming an Entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> and what? I would, yeah, right. wouldn't it make you take notice. Um, and because it had twins in it, I love twins. So what they first did is measure testosterone in a whole, in thousands of people in a big study. The measuring testosterone, levels of testosterone correlated uh, in adults with whether you uh, are a entrepreneur, you work a... a Interestingly, those with a high testosterone in total, um, in general, are more likely to be entrepreneurs. They have lower, ri- because they have lower levels of risk aversion, take more risks, but they're also likely to play rugby and football and work in financial services careers in general. Financial services. So, uh, so it's not like an aggression thing. It's, it's well, more of a risk taking. Yeah, it's thing. a risk taking. It's been, I mean, if I, um, testosterone is kind of, you know, it, it kind of makes sense. It's related with aggression, but this is kind of a little bit different. It's risk, uh, risk aversion, risky behavior and going out there and being, and just taking the plunge to be an entrepreneur Mm. Um, and there's so many um, things that could um, bias this or confound this they thought let's look at um, at what happens in the womb so we know in general it's agreed that the the more testosterone you have the more your ring finger grows as a um, uh, goes longer so your your fourth digit um, size uh, compared to your second digit size is a mark of testosterone and again, they found that these uh, the entrepreneurs had a, a longer ring finger, which does reflect the time in the womb. So the origin of many of most things in life, 
most things it happens in the womb most chronic diseases so they said well why not why not look at uh, something that's not a disease uh, mm. a behavioral, behavioral trait like entrepreneurship mm. and finally they compared um twins which were boy girl and the the girls in the boy girl twins had were, were more likely to be entrepreneurs uh, than the girls in the girl-girl twins. Hmm. And they say that um, testosterone um, manages to transfer from the male to the female twin in utero. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, moving off the ground a little bit further, you, you may be uh, freaked out, folks, by the fact that the cosmic census on the number of galaxies has been updated uh, in the last few weeks. What if the galaxies um, don't get their forms back? <laughs> yeah, well, or the website crashes. <laughs> the website crashes. <laughs> I'll tell you the crash on this because the new, the new number, so um, the new number is basically 10 times what the old number was. What was the old number, though? Well, you can divide this new number by 10. <laughs> um, the, the, the new number was about, well, the old number was about 0.2 trillion. Jesus. Galaxies Two in the universe. Gal- the galaxies. So, galaxies. Galaxies. Many, many of which Whoa. have, you know, 100 billion stars, like the Milky Whoa. Way. Um, so the new number is 2 trillion. Two and these, trillion. these are not current galaxies. These are galaxies that have come or gone. Yeah. So what you've got to remember is, uh. as, as the universe has lived, some smaller galaxies, some as small as, you know, just 100 million suns, so oh, relatively just, just small, 100 million babies, stars. um, <laughs> have collided and grouped together and formed single galaxies. So in so you may have had ten of those form one one larger galaxy. Is that so, that's what's formed the Milky Way? Yeah, yeah. So all yeah. of the larger galaxies typically have been formed mm. by you know multiple collisions and so forth. So in a sense, what what they've tried to determine here is how many have come and gone over the period. And so the new number, which has come out from um, a, a group at the University of Nottingham in England, uh, run by uh, Christopher. Consolis has estimated two trillion total galaxies have existed um, in our universe, which is a, a mind-boggling figure. It uh, is a mind-boggling figure, yeah. but when you think about that's the fact that that's all of them that have come and gone. Yeah. Yeah. I actually don't think it's that high. I mean, you think about all the people that have come and gone on this earth as well. That would be maybe not in the trillions, but <laughs> it's it would a few be billion. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Well, it's probably it's, ten billion or something. It's not a. I mean, most most of the people who've come and gone are still on the earth right yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah, but this is over the course of how many billions and billions of years? Yeah, not, th- over know, thirteen yeah. billion years. Yeah, so yeah, that's it's quite a, quite a long time. And this reminds me big number. briefly of something that really sad I heard this week that apparently Stephen Hawking said, "Why haven't we encountered aliens?" Because mm. as every civilization in large inverted commas develops it, it, it he hypothesized it would just destroy itself before it got <laughs> the capacity to fly to other uh, other planets wow, yeah, that's, just, uh, that's, that's based on on us <laughs> yeah, yeah well. that's very true <laughs> yeah but you, you know it's interesting would would we bother making contact with sheep if that's what we found and, <laughs> and, and so you know but you think a civilization <laughs> no but you think a, a, a civilization advanced enough spiders to to get to us <laughs> yeah. might see us that yeah. way and not bother but neat see Actually, now you're, yeah. now Actually, that's yeah. a good analogy. Yeah, so yeah. Anyway, there's not, a, not sheep, though, you can talk a, you we can talk eat sheep, and that really starts to worry forget, me. Don't now. forget the movie The Day the Earth yeah. Still, one of, one of my absolute <laughs> favourites. The original. Yeah, yeah. that's yes. right. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to very quickly mention to keep a lookout for this week, of course, is the European Space Agency, uh, uh, in, in collaboration with Russia, which is a bit unusual. Um, uh, their ExoMars lander is going to be uh, dropping down on Mars Hopefully this Thursday. I have to say, I don't, I don't have the, the biggest expectation of success on this one. It's, um, they've had a lot of problems with this program, and it's been a long time coming. And NASA was involved, and then budget issues caused them to not be involved. And 
Russia took up the uh, the mantle after NASA pulled out, et cetera, et cetera, and there's been delays, delays, delays. And this is just basically, uh, basically, not basically, but it's a mission to test the landing capabilities. So you remember the Curiosity lander or rover and the way it landed in that spectacularly complex sort of sequences of, mm. of events, you know, including parachutes and so forth. Because you, you have to remember that you can't just parachute down on Mars. The atmosphere is too thin to do that, so you can't get enough air under or, or, or any gas mm. under the parachute to actually slow you down. So you've got to do something else. So you have all these retro rockets and other fancy sort of um, apparatus. And so this is to test that. And they're, they're putting this module down on Mars that will essentially, it won't, it's not going to move. It's not going to do anything. All, well, it'll do a couple of things. It'll measure temperature, pressure, um, wind speed, a few things like that. And it'll last uh, as long as its batteries last for a few, few hours. Um, and then that'll be it. So it's not doing a lot, but it's really there to test whether or not it can land correctly. So they can't um, recreate those kind of conditions, those Mars-like conditions of the atmosphere in a lab and test that? No, I think over the scale that you're talking about, mm. because, you, you know, you're talking about that entire descent mm. at high mm. speed. You can't do that um, in a lab. No, that's hard to do. And, and also just the communication with the, the host vehicle that drops mm. it off, all of those things, you really have to do it. So this is, the idea is to then put a rover down of some type, but they're a little way off. I mean, there's been a lot of failure with mm. Mars over the years, not just with the European Union, but other groups. Mm. Basically, NASA has been the, the primary winner on this one. And so it'd be and, and hopefully they will actually be successful this Thursday. But it has been a fairly plagued uh, problem mm. run, sort of you know a lot of problems in this whole thing. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, anyway, keep an eye. Out. It's uh, it's Wednesday uh, in um, in Europe, I think. So I'm not exactly sure the, the time for us. But they're going to broadcast it all live. So just do a search on ExoMars, and you should be able to find it. And they're going to have Twitter feeds, and and they'll actually. They'll, they'll live um, cast the actual events of the separation from the mothercraft and also of the, the lander going down. So it'll be cool. Anyway, we better take a break for some music. We've got a couple of guests coming in. We've got uh, someone talking about optometry, and we're going to be talking with a member of the Dolphin Research Institute in just a few minutes. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. We're back. You're listening to 3 Triple Arts. Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is a PhD student. Her name is Sue Mason. She's from the Dolphin Research Institute. Sue, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shane. Um, now, we, we've sort of uh, come across each other in an unusual way because uh, my need to go fishing on a, um, on a charter boat out of Mornington um, called the, the Plover uh, has led me to interact with all these dolphins that they see out there. And the people on the boat kindly told me that you were studying these dolphins. Uh, you know, why, why are these dolphins special out, out on Portville Bay? Yeah, look, it's a, we've been a sideways connection, hasn't it, Dr. Mm. Shane? So um, basically my PhD work through Curtin University has led me to monitor the short-beak common dolphins that are off the southeast coast of Port Phillip. And, of course, you go charter fishing out of um, Mornington on mm. the Plover with students, uh, Sandra and the lovely Jess. And um, these short-beaked common dolphins are, are quite unusual. We do have two resident species in Port Phillip, the short-beaked common dolphins being one, and the bottlenose being a second species that a lot of people already know about. Um, the short-beaks are a little unusual in the sense that they're normally an offshore species. Okay, yep. So nine times out of ten people are very... Uh, most people don't see them unless they're going um, offshore. However, we do have this resident group that are quite close to shore along the Mornington, Mount Eliza and 
uh, Mount Martha Coast, yeah. which is what you encounter when you jump on the plumber. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so. And we've, and we've seen, I think I've seen as many as about six in a group, and there's a couple, there was at least one baby there the last time I saw them, a relatively small yep. one. I, I mean, how many are in this pod? Because a, a common dolphins the ones that are in the massive pods normally? Yeah. Is it? So normally, um, often you'll see YouTube videos of these dolphin stampedes and there'll be like a thousand dolphins just literally skimming through the water. Um, But what's happened with these common dolphins is for some reason, A, they've become resident to to Port Phillip and my paper, recent paper's just shown that. Um, But B, they're a much smaller community, which is quite unusual. Mm. So potentially it's something to do with ecologically and and sort of um, carrying capacity. Um, But yeah, you'll see them in in smaller groups. I think there's about 30 in the total uh, community. Which is very, very small compared to what most people know. Um, but you'll see them split into subgroups. So you'll right. often see um, six or so in, in the one group. And, yeah, you will see calves because most mm, of the adults yeah. are actually reproductive females. Right. And as far mm. as I've worked out so far, there is actually only one male that we've identified in the community. So he, he's a very lucky boy. Sounds like some kind of cult. It's a harem. <laughs> yeah. 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 One, one male dolphin and yeah, 29 that's females. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a cult. Yeah, it is. Exactly. <laughs> so he's a, he's a very lucky boy. And we're not sure what happens to them over summer. So there, right. there is a potential that they actually head out of the bay or other dolphins actually come into the bay, which we'll see yeah. over time. And, and now, the bay, I mean, a lot of people don't know much about... I mean, normally on one, the show that's on Two Hours Before Hours, Radio Marinara, they'd be covering this off in, in more detail than I can. But the, the bay is shallow, so it's only something like 20 metres at its deepest point. So, and... It, its temperature is not always the same as Bass Strait. So over over winter, I think it's it's colder, isn't it? So yeah, so what, why would they come into the bay when it's shallow and colder? Food, right? <laughs> Basically, food. There's not more food in the ocean. There yeah. probably is, but it's probably a reliable source here. Right. Okay. And um, one of the things that I, I intend on publishing, and it's part of my PhD thesis, is that these dolphins actually move closer to inshore. Uh, during winter, and it's potentially to do with the movement of the anchovies. One of the local commercial fishers sort of oh, sort of supported my thinking. So it's the movement of the anchovies and the pilchards that move inshore with the colder water. And then as that water heats up, we we actually struggle to find the dolphins. You won't see those dolphins off the plover during right, summer. During summer, yeah. First of all, anchovies and pilchards. We I thought we got them import imported. So it's really interesting to know that yeah. they're they're swimming locally. They're right there. Yeah. Um, and secondly, um, I live on the Mrabonong River, close to where the extent of the tide goes, so almost uh, equivalent to the other direction up at Dites Falls. Mm. Once I saw dolphins right up there. Yep. The, it, because they. Smelled food? Yeah, there. they'll chase broom. So there's often a salt ah. wedge and to do with broom, I think. Wow. I know it certainly happens in the Gippsland Lakes. Um, the other theory that we sort of think happens too is they'll actually go into less saline waters to actually drop their parasite load as well. Wow. Their skin parasite load. So, yeah, so it's So clever. tell us a bit about that. I mean, what, what, what do you mean by the parasite load? I mean, they've got a lot of creepy crawlies or? No, just the, I guess on their skin, there must be some sort of, you know, sort of things that live on there and just that change in, um, skin mm. condition. Right. drop those sort of critters and we don't see anything it's probably more sort of microscopic i'd say than anything else i mean yeah. it's not something i tend to deal with but um it's just mm. one thing we something do see. do yeah because yeah, we'll often get calls um certain times of the year about dolphins up the yarra and it's like yeah that's normal <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound normal um freshwater saltwater I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, That's well, where the tide is. I, I guess think there's fresh yeah. water, there's salt water, and, and there's, there's yarrow water. Brown <laughs> <laughs> water. Yeah, yeah, something else. Yeah. Yeah. So you said um, they disappear in summer. Is that right? They go out. 
I don't know where they go. Well, so, yeah. So, is there any intentions to, to put tracking devices? on Yeah, them or that's part like of that? the problem because um, we we potentially could put trackers on them, mm. um, but they're invasive. Yeah. And so mm. you've got this whole issue of ethics, and yeah. I'm sort of try to be as non-invasive as possible. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a problem, and um, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's just the perception too. I mean, the last thing somebody wants to see is a dolphin with a you know, a radio tracker on it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like it looks like a headset. You know, something mm, quite wow. substantial. Mm. Now, now, um, so just in terms of your research now, I mean, what, what's the next thing that you're sort of looking at with this group at the moment? I mean, what's the what's the current sort of task in so terms of with research? The, with the common dolphins, we'll continue to monitor and we'll watch the the community and, and sort of work out uh, socially who's hanging out with who and whose life history, so who's, mm. who's sort of breeding and who's having calves and and those sorts of things. Um, and then the next intention, what we're currently doing now, is we're taking a lot more photographs, but what we're looking at is uh, the general health through skin lesions, so mm-hmm. the presence and absence and types of skin lesions. So we're using the photo ID stuff that we do normally for the community. To, photo uh, ID, can you, can you said who's who. So you take a photo and you can recognise what nicks in their skin, scars, shape. So, yeah, it's all to do with the, um, the, the trailing edge, the back edge of the dorsal fin. So mm-hmm. I can actually tell you who the individuals of the... The dolphins and, and Stuart and Sandra wow. from the Plover has yeah. it, can actually do it as well. Right. So, so this is like a fingerprint for the dolphins, the actual the yeah. actual part of their body that's yeah. different for all of them, is it? Yeah. The dorsal fin. So um so it's actually interesting because one of the things that um a lot of other dolphin researchers haven't been able to do with common dolphins because they're normally in such big pods is they haven't been able to ID <laughs> and continually ID individuals with this because this group is so small. Mm. Um we can sort of track them over time and, and know who's who over time, so we can actually get a really good life history on these animals, which yeah. is quite unusual for the yeah. species. Yeah, so you were saying before that the temperature of the bay seems to have some sort of, um, you know, when they come in and, and go out. Um, I mean, I know over the last couple of years, I'm, I'm a climatologist, so I know that the bay temperatures mm. have been really, really warm. Do you see a delay in when they come into the bay in those years where you get really, really hot temperatures, or you just haven't been monitoring um, them for that? We're long? actually wondering if climate change has actually brought them in. Ah. So they're starting to see common dolphins across the world, um, more of them coming into shallow, shallower waters, so yep. it's something sort of climate sort of made yeah, changing the distribution of cetaceans, basically. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Now, um, I, I suppose the, the the great thing is that they're in they're in the bay. I mean, mm. you know, a lot of people wouldn't be aware that these uh, these beautiful creatures are in the bay, and they're and, and around some boats there. And we were talking earlier about the, the boat I've been on, but also the the ferry um, that goes across the bay as well. They seem to like some boats. Do we know why that is? And they seem to snob off all the little tinnies. <laughs> <laughs> there is certainly some maybe boats. just aesthetic. <laughs> there are certainly some boats that we've actually seen the dolphins actually chase to get onto the bow, yeah. and, and the plover is one of those, and the bottlenose do tend to do it with the um, the Sorrento Queenscliff Ferry. Right. So we'll actually do a we do a community monitoring for the common dolphins um, on the second Sunday of each month, and I have volunteers yep. help with that. Excuse me. One of our locations is actually the, the Sorrento Queenscliff Ferry for the bottlenose. So mm. yeah, so we know the locations that we can often find them from land and mm. yeah. and from boats, etc. So. so just just before you go, I mean, does the um, Dolphin Research Institute need the support of the community in any way, or how does how does that work? Oh, absolutely, because we're a not-for-profit organisation, so mm-hmm. everybody, you know, every little bit of do- dollars help. Um, so one of those ways is adopted a dolphin. Um, we've currently got an auction online as well that sort of finishes at about nine o'clock t- tonight, and mm-hmm. there's all fundraising to help with the research. And the, we do a lot of marine education as well, so right. our website's the best place to go to. 
Okay. Well, folks, uh, do a quick search online for the Dolphin Research Institute. You'll find them easily enough. Sue, thanks so much for chatting to us today, and, and good luck with keeping these amazing creatures healthy and, and learn more about them. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Sue Mason is a PhD student from the Dolphin Research Institute. We're going to take a short break for some music, and we'll be back in a moment talking about some amazing eye stuff. It's cool. Three. Triple. Uh, you are listening to 3 R. We have our second guest for today in the studio. Her name is Christine Niaku. She's from the uh, School of Optometry and Vision Sciences, Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne, where she's a senior lecturer. Christine, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for inviting me. You're doing some amazing stuff. Now, we, we're going to talk about myopia in a little bit, but before we get there, you've been doing some extraordinary work over the last few years with regards to offering services in countries where they're otherwise not available. And at the moment, I understand you're, you're crowdsourcing or crowd, trying to crowdfund some, um, some of the students to go to Sri Lanka. But let's, let's start back a couple of years. Where, where did this sort of work begin and what have you been doing? Right. It began uh, in 2013. <clears throat> surprise, surprise, through Facebook. All right. One of my fellow col- colleagues, Dr. Kwong Cham, he... Um, came to me and said, look, somebody posted on Facebook about uh, heading off to Laos and they want to do some screening on children. And there's a lot of orphaned children with disability in Laos uh, and there's absolutely no eye care. And uh, my area of expertise is, is in paediatrics and uh, binocular vision. And so I said, oh, that sounds really interesting. Why don't we um, try and see if we can put a team together? So it started on a small scale going to Laos and going to various orphanages. Then we found ourselves going to villages uh, in the remote parts of Luang Prabang. And we saw lots of uh, children ranging from preschool years right through to uh, late secondary years. And uh, a lot of these children were both deaf and mute. Okay. And uh, nobody had really thought to investigate the visual system. So it was very, very... It was an eye-opener, pardon mm. the pun. <laughs> and uh, we got to see some incredible children, and it's, it's a life-changing experience. And we didn't take any students to that first uh, 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 session, and uh, but we thought the following year, why don't we start to engage some of our Doctor of Optometry students and uh, it got bigger and bigger, and so mm. we've, it's been four years now. And uh, we last year we had four third-year Doctor of Optometry students come with us. There were four practicing optometrists. I, I went to that trip last year as well, and uh, we had um, we've collaborated with a charity associated with Rotary called Global Hand Charity. So they looked after all the logistics side of things to ensure that we were kept safe. Mm-hmm. And it's been a wonderful collaboration. And yet again, this year it's getting even bigger. And uh, this year uh, we again have four Doctor of Optometry students who have volunteered their time, and they've just been spectacular. They've kind of just taken it, yeah. taken it all, and and I don't have to do as much. Oh, that's good for as, you. As I yeah, need yeah. <clears throat> so it's wonderful. And uh, but we also um, th- this is going to be getting bigger. We're, we're going to Sri Lanka and going again to remote and rural areas in mm-hmm. Sri Lanka. And uh, instead of looking at getting through fifteen hundred people in about a week we're looking at uh three to five thousand people in a week uh as you can imagine it's eighty thousand there's actually eighty thousand people who are in need of eye care Mm -hmm. um in those remote regions and uh what we needed to do then was uh get a whole lot of spectacles and this is kind of where we had this collaboration with some high school students as well um there were about 
1,200 pairs of glasses that needed to be uh, sorted and graded and put into boxes and yep. uh, they needed to be um, verted. Verted means we're checking the prescription of these donated yep. glasses. So we got uh, half a dozen, I think seven actually, Wesley College IB students to come on in over the holidays. Uh, we got students, we were inundated with students from the Doctor of Optometry uh, course right from first year to final year. Uh, staff members, our PhD students all came in and uh, what, what was going to be a really enormous task became a really fun task. Brilliant. And uh, what came of that also was doing some crowdfunding and the students have really run this. I, I don't mm. even know how, what... I didn't even know what is, yeah. <laughs> crowdfunding was. That's okay. yeah, yeah. Um, and You're in good company here. That's right. Nor did I know how you get onto the internet and, and make it happen. So they did it all. And uh, we've had excellent response there. And that funding is not going towards the students or the staff getting over there. It's actually going towards um, projects in addition to the eye care that we're going to um, fund over there. So, right. so in Laos, what we did previously, we didn't use crowdfunding. We just had barbecues and all sorts of other fundraising ideas. So the funds that we raised uh, went towards the villages. So mm. the community, it was books, large, largely books. And whatever the the people on the ground were suggesting were useful for um, those villages or those communities, we, we made some funds, to, uh, put some funds towards those projects as well, now, in addition to the eye care. Now tell me, uh, one of the things I, I've noticed with optometrists is if you take away their ophthalmoscope, they're kind of, they're like a car without wheels. That's a bit uh, sad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what do you what do you do on the ground in these? Do you, do you take those instruments with you? I mean, what can you? It goes back to basics. How much can, yeah, how much can you get away with without that sort of correct stuff? No, we, we we took a lot of that equipment with <laughs> oh, yeah. us, but it's it's right down to basics. So yes, mm. we did need our trusty ophthalmoscope yeah, yeah, yeah. and our retinoscope and a whole lot yeah. of lenses and uh, and bits and pieces and some eye drops, etc. Mm. Uh, so uh, with between eight people travelling, we could. Um, do the whole get it, get it yeah. all over there. You don't need a lot of expensive equipment, mm. yep. um, and you can do great work with minimal equipment. Minimal but yes, stuff. the trusty you, cells you, can be there. Yeah, Absolutely, people love it. Now, now is there for the crowdfunding? Is there a website that we can um, uh, lead people to on that? Yes, there is, and I can provide it. I don't think I have it handy. That, that's it's right. called GoFundMe, and there's a whole lot of letters and numbers right. afterwards. But yep. I, can, I can. Well, people people can look across. that up. Now yes. let's let's switch now to myopia and the issues yes. of um, short sightedness mm-hmm. because there's this. Issue at the moment with small electronic devices, you know, pads, phones, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where there seems to be this this fear, and I have it too. I'm telling my kids all the time, you know, don't don't use this stuff all the time. You know, that limit their exposure because I'm worried sick they're going to, you know, ruin their eyes. I mean, I mean, what are we what are we seeing there? Is is this a real? Is there a real connection that's definable at the moment, or is this just a whole lot of people like me freaking out over nothing? No, I don't think you're freaking out. There's certainly um, uh, myopia has become an epidemic. Worldwide, two point over two billion people, two point three billion people um, worldwide with, with myopia. Um, but what's more disturbing is that the prevalence of myopia has, incre- has increased exponentially. And uh, once it used to be in the low teens percentage-wise in Western countries, mm-hmm. it's now about th- sitting at about thirty-five percent US wow. and UK. Yeah. Australia's um, still doing relatively well. We're a little behind that, so that's a good thing. Maybe it's the outdoors. Oh, it could be because our internet's <laughs> crap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're an outdoors kind of society, so yeah. I guess that that probably pay, may play a role, and I'll go into that in a moment. Um, in China, it's as high as 90%. Wow. So some studies 90%. have shown myopia prevalent in teenagers, young adults, it's 90% in Singapore. Um, in China, the most recent study showed uh, about 80%, and they compared that with uh, rural Nepalese, 
sitting at 1.2%. So there's something going on. And, And I guess what fascinates me about myopia is this study from way, way, way back when, before I was born. Um, an Alaskan study was done looking at a very remote community. So um, uh, genetically they were very similar and the myopia was sitting at around 1.5%. And uh, this Alaskan uh, Indigenous group um, then was obviously given lots of wonderful education and mm, stuff. Western stuff yeah. that we love to give uh, Indigenous um, <coughs> yeah, like, communities. Like Big Macs. Polio. And by the next generation, and then the generation after that, it went to uh, over 50, no, just under 50% of myopia. And this cannot be explained by genetics, obviously genetics alone. And that's the trend we've seen all the way through. That has always fascinated me as a student. Hmm. Yep, go ahead. Um, So would would you class myopia as a as a chronic disease and would we be should we be thinking of looking at the factors we look at early risk factors with other chronic diseases or is it something completely specific to electronic devices for example uh, oh no no it's it's much bigger than just the electronic devices um it's about lifestyle more than anything else but um it is a chronic disease and uh those people who become myopic 20 percent of them will will become not just needing glasses but will become highly myopic and then you have a whole set of other issues associated with eye disease and visual impairment that mm. can't just be treated with a pair of glasses. So might, you might think that most, my, most myopic people can get a pair of glasses and then they're yeah. back into the real world and they're fine, but there's going to be 20% of those that by the time they um, reach their adult years, they're going to become high myopes. And it, it affects them by uh, affecting their retina, so retinal detachment, uh, degeneration of the retina, so um, cataract, glaucoma, all these other diseases that are not Mm. so easy to manage and treat um, become greater risk and are more prevalent in this population. So I think it's it's bigger than just a pair of glasses and it is a chronic problem. I do, guess. Yes. Do we have? Oh, I was going to say. I mean, what's the? Is this when we look at things like you know diabetes and so forth? We we can point to some very specific lifestyle issues that are driving this this epidemic of, of these particular chronic diseases. I mean, when it comes to the eye, can we yeah. can we point to anything at the moment? I mean, because when we look yeah. at that that example of an indigenous culture being affected by a, a Western nation. And all the things that come, there's so many parameters there. I mean, you can't take them all out of the mix. So Absolutely. what would we take out of the mix in, okay. in our case, do you think? I think that's the $2.5 <coughs> billion dollar question. I'm, I'm, ha- I'm happy to take, take the money for the question. Um, or is it the answer, you get paid for the answer? And the it's interesting because way back in the late 1800s, some suggestions were already made. Wow. And with a very little evidence behind them by um, a German by the name of... Con, I think his name was, an ophthalmologist. Um, and there was ne- recently a comparison made with what we know now and what Con mm. uh, uh, reported back then. And there were sort of three main main issues. One was um, don't do as much close work. So right. is, is it about the screen or is it about the proximity yep. of the screen that's really the issue here? Um, and he even went on to, the, back in the 1800s, went on to suggest that uh, if you don't want to go myopic, uh, don't have an education and don't be affluent. So <laughs> don't read. Um, and the other one was around lighting. And there's certainly a lot of evidence now. And back then the evidence around lighting was obviously scant. It's certainly a lot greater. We're seeing that, again, another recent study in China looked at uh, some groups of children got uh, one group of children to spend 40 minutes per day outdoors 
mm. more than the control group. The control group just con- kind of continued on with what they were doing. And uh, over three years, they tracked this group or both groups and saw that the progression of myopia in the group that went outside for 40 minutes more than the other group, um, their myopia progressed much more slowly. Yeah. That's not the only study. There have been many, many studies suggesting that... Um, the indoor-outdoor balance is playing a role. Uh, the near-work link is certainly there and it's been in the literature um, and it, it really depends on which bit of research you look at, um, but there's certainly a link between near-work, so the amount of near-work we do mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, increasing risk of myopia. But but the mechanism is certainly still yeah. not... I, mean, I, I suppose it's important to point out to people that the eye in its relaxed state looks at the distant object. Um, whereas when you're looking at something close up, your eye is doing Working a lot hard. of work. Absolutely. And, and over time, maybe that's just having a, a progressive damaging effect that, that can't be reversed. And that's been the theory for more than 100 years. Yeah. Uh, and we still are yet to find out the mechanism. But certainly that is where we're thinking uh, the link is. But we certainly don't have a causal yeah. mechanism at so, this point. So yet another reason, folks. Kick your kids outside and shut the door behind them. It's the <laughs> best thing outside. for them. They'll breathe in nature and they'll uh, they'll mm-hmm. they'll live a better life. Um, Christine, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us well, today. Thank you for and we'll um, me. we'll get you the scene through the the details of we'll the do. crowdfunding yes. and we'll put those up on our website. Thank you. Um, good luck with that. It sounds like an extraordinary program and it's it's pleasing to hear that you're getting support from every level yes. of the students coming through. So yes. that, that's great that they're so um, sort of linked in with the need there of, the, of these communities. Yes, we're very proud of them. Yeah. Thank you. Christine Niaku from uh, the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne. You're listening to 3 R. We're going to take a short break and when we come back, I'm going to maybe talk a little bit about a book I read. Maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. 3 Uh, we're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. If you're wondering what those tracks were, the one you just heard was the Delta Rigs with Better. Before that was R Trees with Team Sports. And the first one was Ellie Wolf with Perfect Moment. Now, I had promised to do a, uh, a few moments ago to do a, a uh, book review, um, but I don't think we have enough time. So we might just talk a bit about news. But the book I'm going to talk about in the next few weeks is called Longitude by Darva Sabal. And it's a really, it's a really good book and story. But I, f- I figured to do it justice. I actually have to do a bit of an explanation of the way in which longitude and latitude have been measured over the centuries and that sort of leads into why this book is so so interesting because these things are not not um, easy to do. But I thought I would tell you one thing just as a take-home uh, parting gift <clears throat> if you were all excited about this, which I'm sure you weren't, but anyway, <laughs> um, is some people have trouble remembering which one's latitude and which one's longitude. Did you? No, you good. Well, I work with it all the time, so I know. <coughs> so longitude good, yeah. is lo- longer lines for longitude. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the way I've always remembered oh, flatitude it. and latitude, <coughs> flatter of the flat lines. <laughs> <laughs> That's I not going to help. Just making this up. That's not going to help anyone. But the way I remembered latitude and longitude was with latitude. Um, if you if you look at the lines of latitude, you can't go far before you run into a pole. Oh, that is terrible. You like that? That Whereas longitude, you can just keep walking forever and just walk over your own footsteps. You never hit a pole. <laughs> That's how I remember that. Is that cool? I really oh, you're I horrified see. by that. I'm horrified by that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the dad joke of the century. But it's, but it's true. It's true. But it's, it's absolutely like, oh true. Yeah, people yeah. remember it. Unless you go through, <laughs> unless you, unless you 
going through a latitude that runs through Poland. Yeah. Uh, oh, the second worst no, that that joke of all time. Tweet that, Liv. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, people remember these things because they're just so yeah. cool. See, I- even if they're stupid, it's good to remember something uh, because it stands out, and that's the way the brain works. Yeah, that's how I remember things. Fair enough. Stupid we'll examples. <laughs> now, you had another quick bit of news that you wanted to share before we finish I do we have a, a quick bit of news. It's a, it's a cool bit of news on uh, dinosaurs. Yay! We all love dinosaurs. Well, at least I do. Anyway. Um, but this is about a, a duck-like <laughs> bird that was a fossilised duck-like bird, obviously, not a real one, um, hmm. which was discovered off the coast of Antarctica. And okay. it was discovered in a rock and they found bits of it, you know, as, as paleontologists do. They took it back to their lab, gave it a CT scan because that's what they do to get inside the yeah. rock if they're a bit worried that they're going to, you know... Chisel the part. Chisel, yeah, mm. exactly. Because sometimes these fossilised pieces can actually be softer than the, the yeah, rock yeah, around yeah. them. So they've got to be quite careful. Um, and what they found when they looked at that was they kind of found the, the bird's throat and upper chest. And when they looked more closely, they found what they are pretty sure is something called a syrinx or a syrinx, like a larynx, so mm-hmm. a voice box. Yeah, yeah. But in birds, it's called a syrinx, and this is further down in the chest, apparently, at the bottom of the throat. But it's the thing that makes the bird make its noise. Okay. Um, and so based on that, they were able to reconstruct <clears throat> what they think this thing sounded like. That's always cool. I'm not going to give you an impression, but <laughs> it was something like a <laughs> duck or a goose, they think it sounded like. So a honking kind of squawk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure, Something that'll like do. That. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. But it was really interesting because this is one of the things that we don't know about dinosaurs is what they sounded like. You know, people kind of can speculate. But the other thing is that not many of these sphinxes or, or larynxes have been found in dinosaur fossils themselves. And the, the big thing to come out of this work, which was published in Nature last week, was that they're actually wondering whether dinosaurs even had them in the first place because okay. they've now found a couple of these fossils in birds, but they've never found them in actual dinosaur bones. So maybe they didn't make noises at all. Exactly, that's what so they're the wondering. Rah, maybe yeah, exactly. And they're thinking up. it was perhaps more like a um, more like a crocodile uh, or something like that. So crocodiles apparently don't have them either, um, which is what this this story says. And so maybe dinosaurs were making more kind of crocodilian hmm. type noises. So hmm. yeah, something interesting to come out of the world of dinosaurs. Interesting, Jeff. A very quick. Uh, uh, it's a community quick, announcement. A community announcement. Are you in your second trimester, weeks fourteen to twenty-five? A pregnancy right now. We are looking for. Um, women in that situation for the Healthy Parents, Healthy Kids study. Mm. So Google Healthy Parents, Healthy Kids and we'll, we will put up the link um, on our Twitter feed. And this Thank is you. down at the uh, Murdoch Children's yeah, Research Institute? Yeah, based at the Murdoch Children's Research uh, Institute. What do they do to you? They, <laughs> it's, a, it's all about advice during pregnancy, that's ah. all I can say. Oh, so it's a surprise package. It's a surprise package. Very nice. <laughs> well, we, we it's, nothing, it's nothing as strange. It's... it's um, Sensible advice. And they'll get way. to meet Dr. Jeff? Uh, no, they'll get to meet my uh, my uh, clever PhD student, uh, Samantha, and her team. Fantastic. Well, sounds like something people should do. Folks, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. I'd also say a massive thank you to all of you who subscribed uh, and did all of that by the payout period, which ended not that long ago. We very much support uh, your your financial funding of this station. As you know, um, that's what makes the wheels go round. We're going to finish up now and hand over to the team from Eat It. Dr. Jeff, thanks so much. Dr. Ailey. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed. As always, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will have a chat to you again in seven days. <laughs> This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.